we, uh, <clears throat> we're wrapping up uh, our introduction to this book. This is part three of, of the introduction. And we endeavor to, uh, to understand the parallels between the context of the first century Galatian church and our own. And then we're going to go on to answer the question in a little bit, why should we study this book? This is an important, it's an important question to ask, really, when you're studying any book. So let me begin by saying that nascent Christianity, that is uh, Christianity that uh, was in its beginnings, was not as homogenous as you might think. There were various groups in the uh, church that went by the name of Christian, and the margins of liberty that they, that they all lived their faith between would seem rather surprisingly wide to you. For example, if you went into your Wayback Machine, back in time to the Jerusalem Church of Paul's day, what would you find there? James, of course, would greet you. He's the senior minister. He's also the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you would find James' prayers moving, his, his, his teaching informative and applicational. You'd find his gospel presentation sound. His elders, well, they would greet you. They're nice guys. Uh, now, they did worship at the temple. This might catch you a bit off guard, but you have to understand that upon conversion, all born-again believers in the very early and beginning stages of, of the church went back to the temple to worship because there were no church buildings yet by that time. There wouldn't be until the very end of the first century, beginning of the second century. Now, ironically, though, they were the only ones that really understood the true meaning of, the, of Scripture readings in the, te in the temple. Now, during worship, uh, they would sing psalms antiphonally. And that is, certain sections of the congregation would uh, take turns singing different parts of the psalm. This was a standard practice in temple services. But you're standing, of course, with a Christian group, remember. This is the Jerusalem church. And their singing was from the heart. It was robust. It was refreshing. And as you fellowship with the members of this church in a more casual setting, you, you see that they're really characterized by love, as it should be, and you find that very inviting. So far, you're impressed. This is a church that I could attend, you think to yourself. I could even learn a lot from their interaction. But realize that you've been exposed only to the best side of this church's, uh, the best face, rather, or best side of this church's face. Every church has a face, a good one and a bad one. And in their case, you see their sound teaching of leadership. You have their vibrant and solemn and celebratory worship that you appreciate so much. But after a few weeks of getting to know these people, people who attend the church, red flags start going up in your mind. You notice that some of them don't just attend the temple to worship. They actually still engage in some Jewish rituals and ceremonies there. They even circumcise their infant sons according to the Levitical Code. And at first, your, fellowship, your first fellowship luncheon at a large courtyard of one of the members, you're ushered over to a table that is meant for visiting Gentiles because some of the members of the church you learn later would categorize you as unclean. Now that doesn't sit right with you, not at all. 
Now, as you eat, you overhear a conversation at the table next to you about the church's mission outreach to Gentiles. You think, well, that sounds pretty good. One of the men thinks it's important that the members here get trained on how to convert Gentiles to Judaism in order to become, well, proper Christians. We all know that Gentiles need to observe the law of Moses if they're going to be saved, he says. No, you're right, says the guy across from him. And he's going to recommend to the elders that, that teach to consider this. Well, the more you see and hear, the more you become aware of, of practices, some of which are strangely out of place for, for a sound church, and others are just, well, plain erroneous and dangerous to the spiritual life. You're uneasy. What on earth is going on? There are people that go to this church that look no different than practicing Jews. Now, you're sure that this leadership doesn't think this way or encourage this kind of thinking and practice or behavior, but they certainly don't seem to discourage it either. And, by the way, why are you the only Gentile there? Maybe this is not the church for you after all. Now, I told you that the margins of liberty that these early Jewish Christians lived their faith between would seem surprisingly wide to you. You obviously don't understand just how diverse Jews who profess Christ at the start of the New Covenant era were. Let me give you a list of the major groups, of which I'm sure developed hybrid groups as well, that I cannot possibly account for here. So one group would be the Jewish Christians who were Orthodox. And by that I don't mean Orthodox Jews. I mean Orthodox Christians. Christians that were very sound in their Orthodoxy. Apostles, prophets, James, James elders, Philip, Stephen, and those that Luke say in Acts 2, 42, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were some of the 3,000 that heard Peter preach on the day of Pentecost. That's one group. Here's another group. These are Jewish Christians called Bereans, who we don't know, who don't know as much as the first group, but they were sure eager to learn, and they verified everything that they heard with Scripture. And Luke, in, in Acts 17, Luke tells us in verses 10 to 11, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these people were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. That's a second group. Here's a third Third group would be counterfeit Jewish Christians. Counterfeit Jewish Christians. These were false brethren that threatened the churches of Corinth, Asia, Ephesus, Colossae, and Philippi. They didn't all, of course, propagate the same era, but they all propagated era in the name of Jesus. They claimed to be Christians, some even apostles, but they were clearly counterfeit. They were persuasive, influential, they were deceitful, they ruined entire households, and they made Paul's work difficult. 
in order to safeguard, you see, from uh, safeguard what Jews uh, or generations of Jews had uh, always regarded as their exclusive privilege, they compelled Gentiles who believed in Messiah to conform fully to their Old Covenant traditions. Paul and John almost lost some of their churches to these guys. There were Jews or Jewish Christians who were also confused. That's another group that you would see in the first century. Paul and Peter and John, they addressed these, these uh, Jewish Christians as genuine believers. But they were easily taken in, confused, deceived by the false brethren in the previous group. Paul rebukes them, for example, in Galatia for their embracing of error. John reminds his congregation that no one needs to teach you about the gospel or salvation. You know better. You find them in uh, attending uh, the six churches of Revelation, <clears throat> whom the Lord himself warned to straighten up and repent for their error that they were cultivating, or else he would remove them. Paul told the Corinthians that Satan poses as an angel of light, you might remember. And he has counterfeit apostles in the pulpits. It was an effective strategy of Satan, to be sure, and it could overwhelm churches very quickly if they didn't nip this kind of thing in the bud. For example, Paul warns the churches of Ephesus in Acts about false brethren who will come up among their ranks. By the time Peter writes his second epistle, the, uh, to his churches in Asia, they are starting to infiltrate the churches. By the time of 1 John and Jude, they are a force to be reckoned with. And by Revelation, they are fully ensconced in churches and ruling them. Just as with our context, so in the first century, there were people in the church who professed Christ that had unorthodox beliefs and practices and leave us wondering, scratching our heads as to whether they were actually genuine. You might remember Simon the Magician. He was converted in Samaria under Philip's preaching. In Acts 8, verse 13, we read that Simon himself believed that after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and he observed the signs and great miracles taking place, and he was repeatedly amazed. Well, so far, so good. But was he really saved? Let's read on. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could acquire the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter, for your heart is not right, before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart will be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of unrighteousness. Huh. Now that's a scathing rebuke. Seems rather unfit for a believer. Then, churches back then seemed well, just as fractured as they do today, don't they? 
with multiple denominations and independent churches doing their own thing. But how did Christendom in the first century get this way so quickly? Well, here's a bit of history that you should know. It's going to help you in your understanding of the letter of Galatians. The New Covenant Church began with 500 plus followers. Jesus appeared to them, and right before his ascension, he commissioned all of them to go make disciples of all nations. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest part of the earth. Church started fulfilling that commission by Acts 2. Luke recounts that during the Jewish feast of Pentecost, which was attended by diaspora Jews and Gentile proselytes, devout men from every nation under heaven were there. From uh, the Parthians and Medes, the Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, Cretans and Arabs. Now Peter gave them the gospel, and according to verse 41 of that chapter, Luke says, those who had received his word were baptized, and there that day were added about 3,000 souls. The new covenant was off and running. Luke says in verse 42 that some of the new converts at Pentecost were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. We assume the rest who returned home from that group to their respective regions of the empire proclaimed their faith. Now, at this time, the early church was filled 99% with Jews who professed Christ and those Jews fell into two categories. Two categories. Some of them were honest-to-goodness Old Covenant believers long before the event at Pentecost. That is to say, they were already saved individuals who were waiting for Messiah to come and inaugurate the New Covenant era. They were the Old Testament remnant. They trusted in the work of Messiah who would come. Simeon was one of them. You might remember this guy. He was waiting at the temple to see the Christ child. He asked God to keep him alive until he could see Messiah. And God granted his prayer. The writer to the Hebrews also mentions many more in chapter 11 of his letter. John the Baptist was another one. When the New Covenant era came at Pentecost, those Old Testament believers who were still alive simply made the switch from Old Covenant life to New Covenant life. That's all they had to do. They believed that the Old Covenant was now obsolete and replaced by New Covenant. No more sacrificing. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. No more high priest. Jesus was our high priest. No more priesthood. There's now the priesthood of all believers. No more ceremonial rules of the law to have to keep. Jesus fulfilled them all. No more temple. Because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, both individually and collectively. For God desires worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. They believed all that. They were saved. We find one of these remnant believers in Acts 18. His name was Apollos. 
And a good example of an Old Testament believer who is transitioning from Old Covenant to New Covenant. We see in verses 24 to 28 that he had some, well, new things to learn. Luke says, Now a, a, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was proficient in scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he was accurately speaking and teaching things about Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. Hmm. And he began speaking boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they started explaining the way of God more accurately to him. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Wow, who is this guy? He was an Old Testament believer in Messiah. He was truly saved. But he was lacking some important information that he needed to to be caught up with. And so when he was, he went on to be a great to be of great use to the Lord. Now, that was one group who made up this 99% Jewish community that we're calling the New Covenant Church. The other group of Jews that made up this number of New Covenant believers of the early church, they came from what you might call Yahwism gone bad. Yahwism gone bad. What is that? Well, throughout most of the Old Testament Israel history, many, if not most, Israelites were not genuinely redeemed individuals. You can read this, which is why, of course, there was a remnant. They just claimed to be and went through the motions, but they were really unconverted Hebrews. And their view of Messiah was not the same as that of Adam and Eve, the patriarchs are Moses and David, the chronicler, the prophets, the psalmists. No, they, they believe that Messiah was God's anointed political ruler who would come in mighty display of power and majesty, subdue their enemies, and set up his kingdom forever. Now, they were only half right. Yeah, they were clearly missing the other half, the first half. Messiah's initial incarnation and humility and substitutionary atonement and sacrifice for the sins of his people and resurrection to conquer death. That, that's Yahwism gone bad, you see. Now, we don't know when this wrong thinking became the norm in the nation of Israel, but it was certainly firmly in place in the minds of the exiles when they came back from Babylon to Jerusalem. By this time, mainline Yahwism had developed synagogues, created Pharisees and Sadducees, had promoted a skewed view of the law and our relationship to it, of salvation and of Messiah. By the time Jesus came, only the remnant knew the truth. The majority of Israel did. The Pharisees didn't, the Sadducees didn't, the Zealots didn't, the Essenes didn't. We find in John 3, Jesus chiding Nicodemus, the ruling priest, who knew nothing about what it meant to be born again. You are a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things, Jesus asked. 
Well, this was news to him. And by the way, this is why when Jesus came on the triumphal entry at Passover, he may have been received with and, and welcomed with shouts of Hosanna. But in short of a week, all those people screamed for his blood because they didn't have a right understanding of the Old Covenant and of what Old Testament theology was really about. So, like the rest of the nation, Nicodemus understood that salvation came by virtue of being born a Jew, born under the law, and keeping the law. Now, all the disciples that Jesus chose, by the way, were grounded in this teaching. They were in steeped in Yahwism, God bad. That's why they missed many of the points that Jesus taught, while they abandoned him during his passion, and while they were absolutely shocked when Jesus was crucified. Surely such a thing wouldn't have happened to Messiah. We know that all but Judas, however, were saved under Jesus' ministry. They, they came to understand for the first time the true gospel that their precious Torah taught. So did James, the Lord's brother, who became the head of the Jerusalem church. So did Philip and Stephen and Priscilla and Aquila and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy, among others. These saved individuals, most of whom came from Yahwism gone bad, represented the true church. The apostles were the most orthodox, since the Holy Spirit continued to teach them directly about Jesus uh, and teach them what Jesus hadn't taught them. But the rest of the Jewish believers, well, they were a mixed bag spiritually and, and maturity-wise, or on the spiritual mature spectrum, we could say. Part of the reason for that is, well, believers grow at different rates, right? We understand that. Maturity doesn't happen overnight. But another thing that didn't happen overnight was the shedding of Old Covenant requirements. I want you to listen to this very carefully. Many Jewish Christians found it difficult to give up cold turkey, what was drilled into their heads from childhood. And they were not talk and we're not talking about bad or sinful habits either, which are hard enough for many Christians to overcome. Now we're talking about the way of life that God once upon a time sanctioned and God required and commanded to be observed, or else he would he would punish. Here's Jacob, all right? Here's Jacob, a young man of 30, staunch Jew, born in the first half of the first century, steeped in Yahwism gone bad. He had been taught to think that Gentiles are unclean, shouldn't eat with them, associate with them, and certainly not marry one. They are pagans, and they're not on the same level as I am before God, Jacob thought. I have God's law. I keep God's law. God made his covenant with us, not with them. They have nothing. We have kept the ceremonial laws. We, may, we have various sacrifices. We attend three mandatory festivals at the temple in Jerusalem. We listen to the rabbi's instruction in the synagogues. We hate Samaritans. And the whole nine yards, this is what Jacob the staunch Yahweh believed. He was steeped in this stuff since he was a kid. 
Now you bring a person up in this thinking from childhood, and he becomes a staunch adherent of it, he is compelled not to deviate from it for fear of angering Yahweh. All right? One day he hears Paul preaching in the courtyard, in the open air, and he is saved on the spot. Do you think that this guy, do you think it would be easy for him to just jettison all the ceremonial law of the Old Covenant just like that. Start eating with unclean Gentiles. Disregard the rabbi's teaching at the synagogue. Can you imagine not attending the temple on three mandatory festivals or making any more sacrifices there? What would the religious community say to him? Well, this was a huge change. Not, 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 that, not made easily. Jewish Christian converts struggled with this transition. Even Peter himself had trouble adjusting. Do you remember? In Acts 10, his hesitancy to associate with Cornelius was met with a vision from God by which God corrected Peter's thinking. Now, this is an apostle we're talking about. He saw a sheet with all kinds of animals and crawling creatures and birds that the law declared to be unclean and unfit for consumption. Peter says in verse 7, I heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord. you imagine telling God now? For nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered this mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. It's interesting that things happen to Peter in threes, isn't it? How many times do you have to read a clear command of God in Scripture before you act on it? Maybe we shouldn't be so hard on Peter. The fact that the Lord had to instruct Peter on this repeatedly shows just how much Peter struggled with it. And not just him. This account in, is part of a larger context in which Peter gives the same lesson that he learned to those Jewish believers who struggled with the same thing. In Acts 11, we read in verse 3, Jewish believers took issue with him, saying, You, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Peter and these other Jewish believers who struggled needed to be educated in the New Covenant way of life. It didn't all just come automatically. Peter's motive was noble. He was zealous for God's law. Yes. The problem was his zeal was without knowledge, which is a bad thing. Same problem that many in the church have today. The next time Peter would refuse to eat with Gentiles in Galatia, the motive was not so noble. He was motivated by fear of man, specifically Jews in the church who, possess, who professed Christ but hadn't given up their Old Testament ways or their Old Covenant ways. They no doubt exerted a strong influence. And if Peter, and Peter cowered before them, an apostle, according to Acts 21.20, they made up a sizable percentage of, of the Jerusalem church. It says, Luke says, there were many thousands 
who believed, and all of them were zealous for the law. Hmm. That's the background. That's what's important for you to know and understand as we go into reading and studying this important letter of Galatians. Why then study this book? Maybe you already have some initial notions of that. As with all books in the Bible, Galatians has an enduring message to all Christians everywhere and in every era. In light of the brief context of the early church and the the various versions of it that existed that I just enumerated for you, let me draw for you at least six reasons why we need to study this letter. And there are more. Here are the the top six, I think. First of all, we need to have a proper understanding of, of the Christian's relationship to the law. We need to have a proper understanding of the relationship, the Christian's relationship to the law. Luke mentions a large number of Christian Jews who were zealous for the law. Now, were they all wrong? Well, some definitely were. And they were not believers. Paul, however, was a Jewish believer, and like the psalmists, he did show just how rightly zealous for God's word he was, and we should be. We know that the Old Testament was not abolished, but rather fulfilled by Christ. Jesus himself summed it up in Matthew 22, verses 35 to 41, as loving God and loving neighbor, in that order. And later, the epistles would speak of it and of that summary in terms of the law of love by which we must operate. So born-again believers love God's law. We can keep it in Christ, and we seek to live in accordance with it. It's our desire, in fact. It is a proper way to be zealous for God's law. We'll talk a lot more about that later. But let me also point out that legalism, you know, describes the efforts of a Christian to take certain rules that he devises for himself for the purpose of a closer walk with Christ, And he imposes it on others in the church. That's legalism. To devise rules and strategies to live live by for yourself in an effort to overcome certain temptations and to train yourself to be more godly in areas of your weakness is an admirable and praiseworthy thing. We should all be doing more of that. But to demand that other Christians also live by these rules is legalism, and just plain wrong. The other extreme to legalism is called antinomianism. That's a fancy word. It's a term made up, Greek term, made up of two Greek words, anti meaning against in this context, and nomos meaning law. So you have against law or no law. And there were some Christians then, as there are today, who believe that living by grace means that they don't have to submit to any part of God's word or obey it or its principles in any circumstance. Paul settles that misunderstanding, of course, in Romans 6, verse 1. Galatians shows us then the proper way that we're to think about God's law for godly Christian living and how to avoid these two extremes. 
Number two, we study the book of Galatians to learn the importance of God's determination to save a people for himself by grace. He is determined to save a people for himself by grace. The reason many in the church today gravitate to one or the other of these two extremes, legalism or antinomianism, is that they don't have a holistic view of the Bible. Theologians talk about salvation history, which simply put is a history of how God is saving a people for himself by grace through faith in the work of Messiah alone. And Paul will make this case by appealing to Abraham, the father of faith. Paul's opponents, however, made the mistake of singling out one part of salvation history and making it the whole. They were sure to get it wrong as a result. I'm talking about the Old Covenant. Galatians teaches us to appreciate all the parts of God's plan while not losing sight of the plan itself. As Carson and Moo say in their New Testament survey, quote, in short, this little book contributes to how Christians ought to put their Bibles together, end quote. How we're to read them, how we're to understand this holistic view of salvation that God began with Adam and Eve and will consummate at the coming of Christ. Number three, we study Galatians to have a proper understanding of Christian freedom and how we might use it to build up the faith of others. Christian freedom, and how we might use it to build up the faith of others. One of the great implications of Galatians is freedom. Freedom that the gospel brings to a person first with regard to his salvation. Galatians 5.1, Paul says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free, Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Jesus himself said, if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. Beloved, we're slaves to Christ if we're truly born again. We're no longer slaves to sin. And that's one important aspect of freedom that Galatians talks about. The second aspect is this. There is a great freedom in living the Christian life, which cannot be relegated rather to a, a system like the Old Covenant or to Judaism or anything else. Rather, the Christian life is lived out on, in, uh, on the basis of an intimate and loving communion with God. So we walk by the Spirit that we might not carry out the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5.16. And that means that we trust the Spirit's words and we do what he says. And this brings freedom. And it has a broader implication, too, in how we use freedom to build up the faith of others in the body of Christ. Paul, Paul makes clear in Galatians that circumcision is of no spiritual value whatsoever. To get circumcised or to not get circumcised, either way, makes no difference. It doesn't add or take away from, uh, from our, our spiritual status at all. For those Jewish Christians who were genuine but hadn't broken out of their Jewish customs, 
were weak in faith in a lot of aspects. They were weak in faith, and Paul had no problem accommodating them. When the gospel was being threatened, well, Paul would debate the Judaizers. He would confront Peter sharply for his hypocrisy. He refused to have Titus circumcised. But, on the other hand, when the gospel wasn't put in question by just mere customs, Paul was careful not to cause undue offense to his weaker brother, and he even kept certain Jewish customs himself when he went to Jerusalem. Acts 18 talks about this, Acts 21. We'll consider how we use our liberty in Christ for the spiritual well-being of others when we get into the book of Galatians. Number four, we study the book of Galatians to see how salvation in Christ alone is the answer to the problem of racism of any kind. Salvation in Christ alone is the answer to the problem of racism of any kind. False versions of orthodox faith exist today, aberrant versions that are either championed by false teachers in the church or embraced by immature and doctrinally anemic Christian leaders who don't know any better. And like the false teachers of the first century church, these false versions today exist under the umbrella of Christendom. Now, unlike those aberrant versions of the faith in the first century, many of them today have found a way to coexist with each other and unify people while at the same time maintaining their own individual understanding of the gospel. We know this to be ecumenism. We believe the gospel, they say, but each in our own way. So we can be different and yet still come together in Christian unity. So Satan simply changes his tactic, you see. But make no mistake, what each version of the faith espouses and what all of them together rally around is not orthodox And it is a threat to the holistic faith that the Reformers revived and the Puritans cultivated. And sound biblical Christianity, then, is an affront to these false groups because it doesn't promote their kind of unity. And therefore, it is racist in some way. They maintain that to insist on only one correct interpretation of any biblical passage with many applications, or to practice church discipline, or that Christians should marry only other Christians, or that Jesus is the only way to God. Well, is obviously racist against others who are sincere in their own approach to God. And it's quite intolerable. And, and an arrogant position held by people who insist on their own way or that their way is right, and they want to manipulate others. This is what they think of us. Ironically, this is exactly what the ecumenical movement does. I might point out that the aberrant versions of Christianity that exist in the first century 
seem to all seem to have all been founded either on confusion, Acts 11, pride, Galatians 2, fear, Galatians 2, and Hebrews, idolatrous thinking, Peter, and Acts 11, embarrassment, Galatians 2, ignorance, Acts 18, or desire for power, 2 Corinthians. Christians who are misinformed need to be educated. If they're genuine, then they will change their thinking and their behavior. If they are truly born again, the Holy Spirit will work through his truth to bring about change, godly change. Priscilla and Aquila refined Apollos' theology, and he went on to be a great Bible teacher, right? Those zealous Jewish Christians in Acts 11 that took issue with Peter, they changed. This is what we read. Verses 17 and 18. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he also gave to us after believing the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I, Peter says, that I could stand in God's way? Well, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has also granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Those over the years in recent church history who stood their ground for orthodox faith, knowing that only the Holy Spirit can bring about true organic unity through conversion, are models to us to stay the course. You know some of them. I think of the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, who stood for the true, for true biblical unity against the influence of the ecumenical movement in the middle of the 20th century. He became a strong voice for Christian unity, for the right kind of unity. Some of us remember in 1994 the strong and sound response that John MacArthur, the late R.C. Sproul, the late D. James Kennedy, and John Ankerberg together gave the ECT document. When that came out, it was published the same year by some leading Catholics and some well-known evangelicals to show that in spite of obvious differences, there is enough common ground that allows them to minister together and to unite. This was ecumenicalism at its best. And no more than a year later, the late James Montgomery Boyce assembled more sound theologians from the academic world and pastorates around the country in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to draft not, uh, not only a formal response to the EC document that complete, uh, uh, complemented the response of, of the four that I just mentioned, but also to officially call the modern church essentially to another reformation. The document that Boyce's group of dissenters produced is called the Cambridge Declaration, and it is one of the documents that PRBC lists in its church constitution and bylaws as, quote, a valid statement of the current condition of modern evangelicalism and that we agree that many who would call themselves evangelical today are dominated by the spirit of this age rather than the spirit of Christ. We accept these documents not as any authoritarian code of faith whereby they are fettered, we are fettered rather, but as an assistance to us in controversy, a confirmation of faith, and as a means of edification and righteousness. The battle for sound orthodox faith rages on and will continue until the Lord returns. 
people both outside and inside the church will continue to misconstrue the pure gospel of grace and its implications. Of that you can be sure. Five, and finally, we study the book of Galatians to learn the proper way to contextualize the gospel. To contextualize the gospel, with regard to evangelizing unsaved Jews of a Yahwism gone bad, Paul contextualized his evangelism. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20, uh, 19 and 20, For though I am free from all people, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may gain more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I may gain Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, so that I may gain those who are under the law. Under this principle, Paul had Timothy circumcised. You see, Timothy's mother was a Jew, and Timothy had been raised a Jew, but he wasn't circumcised. His Greek father saw to that. Timothy was a Jewish Christian. Now, the unsaved Jews in his particular area that Paul wanted to minister to knew Timothy, and they knew he was a Jewish Christian. Uh, he knew that he was a Jew, rather. And in order for Paul to gain the ear, or their ear, and preach the gospel to them, Paul had to be able to assure them that his assistant was circumcised. As we'll see in Galatians, and I made this point already, Paul makes the point that circumcision is nothing. It doesn't save. It, it does nothing. There's no spiritual benefit whatsoever. So the Judaizers were actually making it something, but Paul said it was nothing. And since neither circumcised nor uncircumcised makes any difference when it comes to salvation or the duty toward God that we have, well, having Timothy circumcised in order to prevent unnecessary offense from, uh, from unsaved Jews that they were hoping to gain an audience with was a wise move. We'll talk a good deal more about contextualizing and what it really means to be all things to all men, since there have been those in our day who actually use that principle and abuse it and cause offense to God. Five reasons. As I say, there, there are more, but five top reasons anyway that we need to know. Uh, and it gives us a great motivation to break open this letter and start digging in. And we will do that, I promise. Starting, um, starting next week. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for preserving this letter down through the ages that it might wind up before us so we could study and for the reasons that we have enumerated, that, that our faith would be more informed, that our living Christ to the world would be effective that you, most of all, would be honored and pleased by your servants, and that those on the receiving end of our words and our behavior will come to see Christ for who he really is and their desperate need to be saved by him. Lord, we pray then that you will give us ears to hear and eyes to see the greater truth of this letter 
and that the assistance of the Holy Spirit will move us to greater acts of godliness as a result. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.